Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. the encounter with the widow, Hrow and the others are now faced with the aftermath of both battles, and figuring out how they should proceed now that they have technically won. We find out that not only is the Doctor continuing to be the most sympathetic of the enemy crew, so to speak, she has also been hiding heretofore unknown puissants in regards to communication, because she either... I I suspect if she was chosen to be a doctor on board a slave ship, then she might have had a lot of exposure to cats taken from the New World and learning of various languages, that it wasn't just a result of the time spent in the small colony on the New World continent and time spent on the ship as well. She Mm. clearly has a talent for picking up languages because even though she may not be fluent in any of it, she is able to speak with a great enough breadth of detail to communicate complicated ideas with Hrow and the other cats as she tries to see to their own needs but is caught between the selfish desires of the captain but also like she is sympathetic towards the the, the, the captives but doesn't necessarily want to lose her own life either, and so therefore is sort of boxed in by Beatrix's argument that if they don't, if she doesn't hedge a little bit with the truth, then none everyone of her, dies. Then everyone dies. Yeah, exactly. Her mm. and them as well, because they're not necessarily going to be able. Well, they're as the conversation happens, we find out. Hey most of their water stock is gone. And, like, if they had less food, then that might be a more survivable issue. But they're only going to be able to go on so long without potable water, and they're definitely not going to be able to make it across this sea between us and the New World and have any chance of surviving, even keeping the the lions alive to, uh, to pilot the boat. So this really only becomes the only option for any of them, even if it is <laughs> to to deliberately invoke the the uh, the bad cat joke here, putting themselves into the lion's mouth. 
I'm sorry. That just came to me as I was laying out my I'm more, there. I'm more upset with how perfect that is <laughs> rather than like you invoking it at all. It's like, no, I, I would be upset if we didn't make it, but that yeah. doesn't stop me from also being upset that we've included it. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's the way it is sometimes with bad mm. jokes or puns. It's just that in this particular case, I'm the one that couldn't help reaching for the low-hanging fruit. So, it's fine. Really, I just think that Toby was disappointed that I got there first. Something that I enjoy about the Dr. Shearer's character is that she is sympathetic to the captive cats, and but she is not... You're aware of the fact that she is either through her circumstances or just what is essential. She's not like an outspoken advocate who is doing everything she can right now. Mm-hmm. And it, that's not what makes me uh, appreciate her. Like, it, obviously <laughs> I want to say is that what I appreciate is that there is this ongoing feeling that she knows she could be doing more feels remorse over that and is working continuously working to try and do more that she her voicing and helping translates the what the lions are saying to the captives is her taking a step towards betterment and then from there she's still got a ways to go whether it's for the reasons that Beatrix has laid out or just for her own reasoning, she does decide, I can't tell them everything. Mm. And that is, you know, that is not a perfect change of heart. That does show that she can't be entirely with them. And then when she gets back to Leon, she is aware of someone that she wishes to emulate who she thinks yes this person is doing exactly what i want to be Mm. and it's making me realize that i can do more than what i have done and i think that's what makes her character sympathetic even more sympathetic is that she's not only aware of the injustices she is aware of maybe her complicity in it up to this point and is taking active steps to work on that yeah one of the elements that we kind of skipped over was the potential relationship between beatrix and shira as women in this business together we only have that one scene between them in the cabin and then a few moments beside to flesh out who they are to each other and we don't actually know what it's like for women in the world of albion whether they have roles of power and leadership as easily as they seem to in Hrow's world an interpretation of the way Beatrix tries to mentor or advise Shira could indicate that Beatrix sees Shira as naive, and therefore the captain tries to give Shira practical advice for what Beatrix would argue is her own good. And it makes me wonder if there's a cultural subtext at play. Beatrix is cynical by experience, had to work hard to get the position that she did with roadblocks in the way and is trying to impart what she believes is her superior wisdom to the Doctor. As we talk more later on, we never really see inside Beatrix's head all that much. We can only guess. But in the case of her advising Shira to hedge with the truth, 
it's arguable that having the ship make for Leon really is the best hope for the Aboriginal cast to survive, even if it doesn't seem like it, since both women know that they will likely be clapped in irons the second the ship lands. Beatrix's argument can both be self-serving and be true at the same time. So let's get back to discussing the viewpoints of some of the remaining characters. We've already brushed the surface of Mohawk in terms of he's been captured, they've retrieved the things that he has stolen from them, at least the... They've retrieved the physical objects, anyway. And he is a very black soul that we don't really want to talk about all that much Mm -hmm. but there is still some satisfaction but also appreciation for how this moment is handled overall because Mm -hmm. he does not get a further opportunity to voice his brand of awfulness into the proceedings he says things and the doctor refuses to repeat them because mm-hmm. this is one of those ideas that has significant context in our modern world of not giving horrible people a platform to spew mm-hmm. their mind. You know, this is the, the, the fictional representation of that. And mm-hmm. on top of that, as Hrau is trying to make the decision of how to proceed and Glam speaks up, and says, if you don't kill him, I will. It feels clear that due to what Mohawk did to her, because she says that that is in fact what happened, and due to the death of her husband, Mar, she is carrying around a lot of pain, and if she were to commit the act, then it might be... Like, we were discussing the concept of taking vengeance earlier, and you know, the fact that in general, exhortations of vengeance are not necessarily very healthy things, even if on some level we want the catharsis of bad people getting punishment for what they did. But fortunately, Glam doesn't have to worry about that kind of poison inside of herself, because... Corral is able to get some level of distance between her and the event in that, you know, she does it, but she manages to remain overall dispassionate about it. We have seen in her her ability to be practical and to do things merely because they need to be done. Although Mm -hmm. in the past, it's always been like, okay, I need to do this for my tribe, but it involves killing Miguel, and I I find that I can't do that because my emotions are too tangled up in this cub for reasons that I don't understand. Here, she is actually able to set emotion aside for the most part and just remove this cancer from the ship and from their lives because in this particular case it's not about necessarily being better than their captors although one could argue that 
as you were saying earlier, that by bringing an end to his life without causing additional suffering and pain is enough of a step in that direction. It's more along the lines of all the cats there understand that they can't risk leaving him alive, that he is too much of a danger, mm. and so therefore must just be dealt with and mm. be done with. To jump off what you were saying earlier about how Dr. Shira chooses not to be his translator and mm. to deny him the ability to communicate whatever venom he tries to spit at them. It's something that I think is indicative of if communication is what brings people together or enables that, then when this black cancer that takes so much away is trying to do even more damage it feels like the choice to not communicate to as you say deplatform it or to just you know if a tree falls in the wood and no one's around to hear it does it actually make a sound if his Venom is only understood by Shira, and she chooses not to extend it further. I think it's a way of just containing this, and mm. I think it's just a much of right and important thing to take away is that communication is something that you work on, but you have the choice, the agency to decide who you communicate with and when you communicate and my favourite line of development in this whole scene is as they take off each of Mohawk's stolen trinkets, Crow wonders if anything will be left once all of them, all of the pieces of other cultures that Mohawk has stolen from his victims will be stripped away from him, if there will be anything of him left underneath, because he has defined himself by his cruelty, and once his cruelty has been forcibly stopped and some of what he has stolen, not all of it, as you said, but some of it has been given back to who it belongs to, what is Mohawk? In the end, we never know him by his true name. So by the end of this, when it's decided we will not communicate with you, we are not going to uh, suffer your presence anymore, and we are just denying you the spiritual close and the idea that you can come back to this world in whatever life is next and it's just, no, just go. It is a complete disintegration of what Mohawk is and what he has done and in the end, Mohawk is nobody. Yeah. Listeners, most of that was a... That that was an expanded version of it, but this is most of the notes that Toby wrote in regards to my entry on the final fate of Mohawk. And I, if he wasn't going to say it, then I would have asked him to say it because I thought that the way he put that whole thing about removing the trinkets and stripping away the identity that he had crafted for himself, I just found that particularly powerful. So well done. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll stop talking about him because he is no. Yeah. One. <laughs> no, he's gone. Yeah, and that's 
what I meant when I said in the previous episode that this is kind of a thesis statement of Alex's that there are all sorts and there will continue to be monsters and people who do monstrous things in these books and stories, but this pus is just something that we heal from and move past. When I first read Toby's words on Mohawk, I found myself in full agreement with every sentiment. Since that time, I have had a chance to hear more of Alex's thoughts on how Phase 2 of New Century will proceed. And without spoiling anything, the simple truth is that these things are never as simple as Mohawk, and future books will reflect that. As I am editing this episode, Inauguration Day has come and gone. Trump is out, and there is, in fact, an opportunity to heal. But Trump being out of power is not the same as him being gone. The cancer in the U.S. has already metastasized, and we will be a long time recovering from the damage he has done to a nation and a people that already had very serious problems to overcome. I echo Toby's sentiment when he wanted to say to Trump, just go. But him being out of power is not the same as having no power. Not yet. And the people that would worship him as an authoritarian leader are still out there, still a danger that is yet unchecked. And that's just in the U.S. In the U.K., they failed to capitalize on an opportunity to turn their nation around, and now the whole suffers for it. So for Alex to write his stories without being honest about these very real problems in their existence would be disingenuous. Especially when Phase 1 was already dramatically shaped by Trump coming into power back in 2016. This is a time for heroes, and Alex will bring us heroes. He will bring us hope. The hope we need to sustain ourselves through our own very real struggles. But just as the road before us is long and dark, so too will it be for our protagonists. So let us return to those good people that symbolize that hope in this book. So, now we start seeing some of the other personalities of the... Personalities? <laughs> God's sake. We need to stop doing that. Never! No, no we don't. Um, I feel like when I initially listened to this chapter, it seemed like everyone got a lot more of a chance to speak and reveal something of their internal selves. I guess it was just that during the audio drama, as it gets verbally expressed, it takes up a lot more space than... Words on a page? Than words on a page, yeah. Because when I was re-reviewing it, the novel, it's like very often their moment was just a paragraph or even a couple of paragraphs and then it was done, which meant that when I started taking a moment to be like, okay, so what's Shala like? What's Rickish like? What's Merrick like? I thought that there was going to be a whole lot more to talk about there, and it it seems a shame that there was only a little snippet of each of them, which makes me very much hope that some of these characters get a chance to come back in some form when we get to back to Panther Soul, but obviously we don't yet know what that's going to be uh, mm. and where it's going to be taking place. And we already know that 
Miguel and Rao are going to have a less of a uh, a front-facing component to it due to the fact of giving Maureen a break. Because obviously all of these characters that are present here in Tiger's Eye were voiced by Alex's immediate cast. And that will still be the well that Alex will come back to. But if he chooses to bring on new voices, then that means that it's less likely that he'll want to recast characters that were done by the original actors unless Mm -hmm. he feels like there's something that can really be done with them. That Mm -hmm. said, I really wish that, like, I think that there's a strong possibility that Shala is going to return um, because of the strong place he had in wanting to be this the tip of the spear in terms of marshalling the various cat tribes against the invading cats mm. against the invading lions everybody is cats so i need to be specific i think and- you just found the blurb statement for the back of the next edition of tiger's eye to as a review it's just to summarize the story is everybody is cats <laughs> No, because then they'll start being confused and be like, what, you're talking about the horrible musical that was made into a motion capture movie in, at the end of 2019? It's like, no, 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 we don't we don't want to associate ourselves with that uh, particular product. Oh, my God, no. Oh, no. I've just realized this bit is all about different cats introducing themselves, having oh, a little God. bit of time introduced to this is me. And it's like, oh, it's oh, no, this is exactly what cats is. Oh, no. <laughs> No. Uh, uh, well, then, then let us quickly move on from that. The actual comparison, the one that feels a m- lot more personal, is the Tales of Busting Say episode of mm. the Last Airbender TV series, because like the naming convention of the chapter is Tales on the... Is it the Sunken Whale, the name of the ship? No, it's the Stalwart Whale. Stalwart Whale, that's it, Yes. But it has that, like, the name immediately made me think of that. And Mm -hmm. for those unfamiliar, that particular uh, series has an episode where it just does little two to five minute segments with different characters who Mm -hmm. you are part of the regular cast, but have maybe not had a specific slot dedicated to them before. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a moment for the audience and the characters in the show to catch their breath because Mm. there's been a lot of forward momentum and so what that kind of meant for me was that I was prepared at first for us to just spend some time getting to know some of the cats that we did not Mm. have the chance to familiarize ourselves with before but to also kind of recognize that the battle had been completed it was finished and that for the time being we could catch our breaths mm. and then that's subverted when before the end of the episode they arrive in leon and the threat is not only returns but is almost redoubled because all eyes are on them and the question of not just their enslavement but their execution is brought up yeah We'll talk about that final moment in a second here, but let's try to proceed through mm-hmm. the characters that we have just very briefly. Of course. Shala, we like immediately. 
as a leader, we see in him something of the wisdom that was present in the representatives that Hrau met, Garrick and Shaw. And here I want to take another moment to express that I kind of screwed up in terms huh? of our original characterization of Durga tribe. And I, I, unfortunately, you got sort of carried away by my passion, so you didn't correct me on this, I guess, is that I asserted that Durga tribe didn't have an equivalent chieftain, and that's wrong. Because the text points out twice that the other voices that spoke up during the discussion with, uh, in regards to what happened with Miguel, there, there are two siblings, Yao and Gar, and they are the twin chieftains of that tribe. So Durga, Durga does have a chieftain in the way that Shala is chieftain. And there is a side conversation later on that implies one of the captives is in fact a panther shaman that may be from Yamaya village or may not. We, I don't think it's ever made clear. But I associated Shala as being the kind of chieftain that I would want and expect in a, an aboriginal setting because he clearly has the strength and the charisma and the courage of his own convictions that both allow him to, well, that, that primarily he immediately comes into conflict with Haka after Haka has been freed and basically is like, no, we're, we're not doing it your way. One of the stories that came to mind when thinking about our experience earlier in the book can be seen in the animated movie The Road to El Dorado. There, the South American Aborigines are led by Chief Tanabuk and the priest Zekel Khan. There is a different power play between the two, where the priest would seem to have more power thanks to the people's fear of the gods. But Tanabuk sees that if he can get the protagonists on his side, then he can negate the cruel influence of Zekel Khan. Shala has the advantage here, of course, as one of the established leaders of the motley collection of prisoners, and thanks to all the surrounding events regarding Miguel, it's easy for him to stand up to Haka. He has no history of working with Haka, did not grow up with him like Yao and Gar did. Haka is not his shaman, and because of his bravery, his status, and the fact that Haka was all but a non-entity prior to this moment, Haka is completely on the back foot in regards to a confrontation between the two. Shala is the chieftain I would rather have had present during the early chapters of the book, but I also have to admit that the circumstances are entirely different, and not merely due to a difference in character between chieftains. I also don't want to step on Haka too much. When we get to the final chapters of Tiger's Eye, we spend a lot of time talking about him, and specifically how my opinions of him changed dramatically as I dug deeper into what made him tick. But at the moment, Shala is who we're talking about, so let's focus on him. What makes Shala tick? Shala is certainly an invaluable ally, and not so much in that we need his presence for Hral to be heard or for our protagonists to accomplish what we want for them, but just to know that Hucker's assertions are not 
the common opinion. He is not what everyone thinks about Prow and Miguel. There was something that came to mind when I made that point in my notes was this comparison to an anime show that has become quite popular, My Hero Academia. But Yeah, um, that's, that's one of those things that everybody's watching and I haven't gotten around to actually seeing. I'm still very curious about that stuff. It is a sort of mixed bag that has some real emotional highs that uh, mm-hmm. keeps it close to my heart, but it has certainly got some sigh why anime moments but uh the, the moments <laughs> yeah, that okay, I, fair enough. The, the the moments that i value are i am able to sort of isolate and take with me and fortunately i think that it is not the sort of predominant experience but there's a character in it who is essentially the rival to the main character and Early on, it's shown that they grew up together, but as the years have gone on, uh, this character, Bakugo, has become more and more of a bully that has made the protagonist's life a living hell. Mm. Or it has, it, he kind of embodies all of the self-doubt that he has for himself. And before they go to the school that most of the story takes place in, like it's the equivalent of the characters going from either middle school to high school or high school to college. And it's this case of everyone in their old school thought that the bully Bakugo was like like hot shit. He was mm-hmm. like the coolest kid in school and therefore like everything he said was gospel. So they kind of echoed his sentiments of oh man, the main character's kind of useless. And then as soon as... A little bit Gaston, then. Yeah, exactly. And then as soon as you get to the new setting, where they know each other, and because the main character develops this sort of confidence and abilities that the rival was not previously, like, had not seen before, they continue their rivalry, but he doesn't have the support of the people around him because mm-hmm. they haven't grown up with him. So by the end of the first season, you're seeing people independent of their, like, it's not because they're friends with the protagonist that they stand up for him. It's just a case of they're more what mature. Is your yeah, yeah like- they, just, they just go like, dude, like, chill the fuck out. Like, the main character even takes a moment to say, like, oh my god, I can't believe that he's actually unpopular here, like, because that's just... When you take someone who has all the power in their old setting and they are suddenly transplanted to somewhere else, that doesn't necessarily translate. They can actually lose a lot of their old oomph and they get called out for, like, okay, dude, you're just kind of acting like an asshole right now. And that's what's going on here, I think, with Haka, is that uh, Shala is kind of saying, okay, like, in this setting, you're kind of coming off a bit nuts here, man. Yeah, yeah. As I edit this piece, I actually find myself surprised that we talked so little about the Panther Chieftain that seemed to loom so large in our minds during this section of the book. But this moment is focused on his supporter, Frau and Miguel, so it's understandable. I will only add that because of his larger story of going home to his daughter and his people, that I hope we get to see more of him. 
There is a simple, pure wisdom in his final query to Hrau, asking if her quest is truly necessary, what it feels like he would be accepted among this new one tribe. When I asked Alex if there was an actor in mind when he wrote Shala, he responded with Denzel Washington, and I couldn't think of a more appropriate voice for him. Let's move swiftly along because we Absolutely. are running out of time. I, I, we, we can talk about these kinds of things for hours, but at this point, uh, I'm trying to make it so that we're not like going on too long-winded, and we do have mm. other characters we should cover. Of course. So, and I would just add, uh, can go on about it for hours. I think the more accurate word is have gone on about it for hours. And will go on about it for <laughs> yes. hours. It is yesterday, it is today, it is tomorrow, and we are talking about New Century for <laughs> a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, 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 at, at one point recently, I think you were we were trying to measure exactly how many hours of conversation about New Century that we have had since this podcast began and how that measured up against all of the original content that Alex and all of the other voice actors put together for the Behind the White Scarves roundtables, most of which are no longer accessible to people. And at this point, I think we've surpassed the, like, 39 hours of content just based on what we've done already here so Woo! yeah exactly we we are we are definitely going to double or triple the level of conversation that has happened by the time we get to like just the end of phase one i think yeah, we're not even done with book three yeah yeah exactly there's no easy way for me to add up the length of all our episodes thus far not without doing a lot of extra work, as I haven't been putting them into a spreadsheet or anything. But even if we assume that the median length of the average episode is about 1 hour and 20 minutes, then based on the 43 episodes put out, we are conservatively over 57 hours of New Century conversation as of the airing of this episode, and that's taking into account non-conversation like music. At some point... I'll get the exact numbers for shits and giggles. But even in round figures, your Windor boys can sure talk, can't we? Okay, so, Rickish. Our only Jaguar voice thus far. We don't... Hrau didn't meet any other Jaguars over the course of her journey with Miguel. So he becomes a new insight into other tribes of the New World. And we find out that he is the source of the snake rat, the mongoose mask that Miguel found and used as his own totem to become the lucha warrior that he felt he needed to be in order to summon the bravery to uh, Mm. free the slaves and uh, kill the the sailor and everything like that. And Mm. we see inside his mind of someone that is able to have sympathy for this strange creature that Hrau has accepted as her own cub. And we suddenly, through our experience of, oh, this is a mask that I was making for a child in my tribe, or perhaps his own child. It's never made clear as a part of the text. But 
his part of the story is him thinking about, should I mention that this was a mask that I made? And making the decision to not even bring it up, because not only does Rickish feel that Miguel has earned it through his actions, but that he manages to have a good enough read on Miguel with perhaps only a small amount of interaction with him that Miguel is empathetic enough that he feels like he would want to give it back because it is this other cat's property and he wouldn't want to feel like a a thief in this regard. Uh, Mm. And of course we know enough about Miguel to, to understand that that, that supposition of his character of Rickish's characterization is very likely spot on, but it's just a personal moment that is very heartwarming. I think. Mm. I appreciate his decision not to mention it at all because he would be entirely within his right to do so, and I don't think that there would have be anything ethically wrong with it, but his understanding of how Miguel would react shows an acknowledgement of who Miguel is that demonstrates that at least some of the cats are starting to see Miguel as more than just a human or a strange creature. Rickish sees him as a person with his own characteristics. And that expression of seeing him as a person sort of perhaps goes a little bit part and parcel with the work that all of the cats have had to do because this began with Rao trying to bring all the disparate captives from all the disparate tribes together into one tribe. So some of the work had already been done in regards to no longer viewing other cats as being alien or potential opponents or anything like that. I think in Rickish's case, it might even be considered that, you know, we don't necessarily know how he responded to seeing the mask. He likely recognized it when it came down. It might have even aided in his personal journey towards viewing Miguel as a sentient being mm. um, in that, you know, he, he, that Miguel was using the mask as intended one could say. Yes. Uh, and so therefore, it's just another data point for Rickish to invoke in terms of, you know, this is a young warrior in his own right. And so therefore, my expression of giving him the respect he is clearly due is by letting him have this mask. Mm. It's a point of connection. Yeah, exactly. And and points of connection are very important right now to to all of them for various reasons. Mm. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to one of the other characters. And next up, we have... Merrick, the other tiger that was Opali's companion, who was actually not given a proper name until just a few moments before, because Opali was always the focus as being the one that stood out to Harau because of his, well, because of his success at being a great hunter in spite of missing an eye and the way the opal itself made him stand out, but also that he was one of the first that she reached out to in order to 
put this new one tribe together. It's a good thing that even though Opali is gone, that there is someone left to speak for him and to give us further reflection on what he was like as a person and what other cats are like in their own experience. But I was also taken by the idea that there is a very subtle indication that Merrick might not have simply been hunting partners or close friends with Opali, that the two of them might have been a couple. Mm-hmm. I I don't necessarily have anything to back this idea up except for one turn of phrase where uh, Merrick is trying to decide what to do with the eye itself and Harau is making her own commentary. It was like, if it was my choice, I would want to keep a part of him with me forever. Specifically, uh, if I was close to him as yeah. you were. Which... Yeah, exactly. Mm. But but no, the, the turn of phrase that makes me think that, like, I don't know what Harau thinks about the two of them together, but there is a line that Merrick uses in his own self-narration where he says something to the extent of, he would want me to be happy. And that feels like the kind of line that couples say about each other, particularly Mm. in regards to, say, one member of a couple is perhaps going to die soon of a disease, and they say things like, I want you to find somebody else. I want you to be happy with somebody else. I don't want you to forever pine after me after I'm gone. Mm. So I, I, I like the idea that the two of them might have been a couple. I don't know if it's canon, and honestly, I'm not sure that I I need to find out or no. anything like that. But the idea that potential homosexual relationships might just be an accepted part of the Aboriginal tribes here just makes me feel warm overall, especially after the... Well, okay. We can't actually talk about this because it gets into some of the later stuff in those final chapters. Or no, actually, no. We can't talk about it because um, at one, it's part of the confrontation between Haka and, um, and Hrao back during their fight is that, you know, it's natural for her to have more children and he doesn't understand why she doesn't just move on and Hrao gets on Haka's case like, I should not be required to have more children in order to fulfill my duty or be a part of this tribe. Mm. So, obviously, when you're dealing on a more subsistence level than having more hands to do the work necessary to protect the tribe is very likely important. But, and that could be a reason why the idea of non-procreative relationships might have been considered verboten in other old cultures. But that's clearly not a barrier here, and I appreciate it. Well, okay. It's not that it's not a barrier here, but I like the idea that it might not be. Like, those relationships could exist, Mm. and they don't consider it unclean 
purely from a practical standpoint. Precisely. So that's that. That moves us on to glam and some of the stuff that we were referring to earlier in terms of her carrying around the weight of Mohawk's assault on her and the loss of her husband. And on top of that, we also find out a little bit more about her personal ability, where the reason why she is a traitor is because she has a mathematical mind and that that level of complexity is not necessarily something that is common to other people that don't necessarily need to count beyond 10. So I like that she gets a further level of ability and therefore agency, mm-hmm. um, particularly in since that, well, so, something we notice here is that there is an equal amount of male voices and female voices in regards to all of these personal stories going on here, because we have Shala and Rickish and Merrick on one side, and then we have Glam and Liseth, and then as uh, Albion proceeds, we have the voices of the captain and the doctor getting as much speaking time as the men in regards to we have more than just the opinions of male voices being included in this overall dialogue. Mm -hmm. Something that I find quite compelling about uh, Glam is that she is kind of a voice of challenging the assumptions that the lions have made against these cats. Uh, the, the, yeah, the, these uh, these beasts. Yes. These unsophisticated savages. Exactly, because first of all, she is good at mathematics, which I think is just something that is indicative of their capacity for logical reasoning and like complicated thought that they certainly would not deem them possible of creating but also because she specifically is saying that they will not resort to cannibalism, even mm-hmm. though, uh, which is something that Beatrix specifically says, oh, I wouldn't be surprised if they did this. Yeah. And you mentioned in your notes that this is kind of a point of comparison such connection to the rest of uh, New Century in that the idea of cannibalism being brought up is something that, you know, is quite relevant to the Wendigos and their specific myth there of, um, you know, the Wendigos were an ancient parable warning on eating the flesh of another man. And I think to me that her explicitly saying that is not something we will do, we are not, as much as our captors might think otherwise, monsters the fact that she makes that call is almost a way, even if it's just thematically rather than practically, of saying why the presence of the Wendigo isn't actually a factor to Rama or uh, this story as of yet. Well, that's that's something we're going to end up talking more about when it becomes relevant, because we also don't yet know how or if the Wendigo would be a threat 
to hunter cats in the same way that they were threat to civilized humans, mm -hmm. um, either in terms of a physical danger or a biological danger. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll leave that to one side for now and finally give uh, a little bit of time to Liseth, who was the leopard who it was mentioned earlier as being part of the interactions with Hrau bringing together the tribe that Hrau recognizes that she was the companion of the hunter that she killed all the way back in chapter one and that she has accepted that even though at the time she very much wanted to kill Harau for not just killing her companion, but the, the fact that uh, he was her brother, apparently. And mm -hmm. so therefore it's like a family blood feud or something like that. She has had enough experience now and she is able to see enough of the big picture that she is capable of looking at herself critically and realizing, you know what, we were willing to try and kill her and take her stuff. I And it's foolish of me to carry around this grudge right now because we are all dependent on each other for survival. Mm -hmm. uh, and so therefore I need to... I need to get over my individual pain. And she does so by focusing on the pain of others. Mm. Part of her story is sharing, not even necessarily conversation, but sort of quiet space with the cheetah that does not get a chance to speak, Arish, but is made clear of his importance in the overall story because the two cheetahs that were killed earlier in chapter 16 were apparently his cousins and so therefore he is also mourning for family the way she is mourned for her brother mm -hmm. so she puts her energy away from wanting to hate this woman that gave them a chance at life and instead chooses to share some comfort or at the very least have some grieving by spending time with Arish and therefore taking a moment to be a part of that larger picture with him, mm. strengthening her ties with someone that is not like her in order to keep her on her own track. Yeah. And a character who has a reason to want revenge, but, finds it in themselves to move past it will always be refreshing to see in fiction especially in a context like this where they are able to work together for a common good against a much worse evil also I think that once you fight a sea monster together you do <laughs> start to kind of develop these kind of like oh yeah we meet up each year to like talk and reminisce <laughs> yeah exactly alright so the final events of the final chapter for our evening, the trial in Albion, which is the Amistad portion of the story, limited to only a part of the chapter where Amistad itself was a two-hour movie. I may very well try to put a link into the show notes. 
if I can, I might not be able to because I think when Alex and Sharon covered Amistad, it might have been one of the quick reviews, and so therefore would only be accessible to those that are already patrons of School of Movies. It's one of those bonus things that you get if you spend uh, $5 or more per month giving them much deserved monies for all of the work that they do. Honestly, on the off chance that you're fans of this podcast, but are not at least $5 patrons of Alex, then I heartily recommend that you toss your podcast with some more coins. If you love what Alex and Sharon do weekly, then why would you not want to listen to more of their opinions on various other topics? Some of Alex's older material that was once only available to patrons has been made available since then, but most of the quick reviews have not, and there is a goldmine of material there. Very often in quick reviews, Alex and Sharon allow themselves more free reign, since they generally want School of Movies to be positive, and the quick reviews will often cover some scathing but also very necessary opinions on media that they cover. In some cases, it's partly just that what they have to say wouldn't fill the length that a School of Movies episode strives for. Some of my favorites include their discussion on Darren Aronofsky's Mother, as well as some of the Year of Spielberg movies that they didn't devote an entire episode to, discussions of Amistad, Lincoln, and Bridge of Spies being among them. This is probably the closest I will ever come to having promotional content in our podcast. The reason I even bring it up is that Through the Wind Door is not just informed on by New Century, but by many of the creative works that the Shaws produce. Our podcast, however, is primarily a hobby with added benefits to me and Toby, so I never bothered to set up a Patreon for this, especially since our audience is small. Maybe that will change in the future, but even if I accept donations from fans, I am not likely to try and monetize Through the Wind Door in other ways. Not unless a lot of other things change. And with that said, back to our show. They talked a lot about how Amistad didn't work very well for them because it was very long and drawn out and was far more focused on how to use a flawed legal system in order to do the right thing which apparently doing the right thing is not enough of a, an argument for doing. They have to make a, achieve some sort of technical win in order to get the slaves, in that case, returned to their home mm -hmm. and, quote-unquote, win the day. So in this particular case, while it's still an interesting interaction, reveals more of the, quote-unquote, civilized world of the Lions of Albion, it's not the primary focus of what's going on. And in mm. fact, unlike the movie that it borrows from, Amistad, does not lead to a happy ending for our cats. The only way that it is important is in terms of giving us a sense of the fact that the same forces that encourage enslavement of others in our world are potentially the same no matter what world you go to. Even if they're anthropomorphic cats, they still have a system of economy and class structure that benefits from having a tier of laborers that you can basically 
pay very little or not pay at all to get work done. As important as these themes are, I want to rephrase my assertion from the original conversation. The scenes in Leon aren't just about world-building. The chapter itself is titled Tales from the Stalwart Whale, so it's really about the characters from the ship. And though much of what happens during the trial is using the Doctor and the Captain as narrators and point-of-view characters, it can't help but also comment on the Doctor and the Captain themselves. As we will get into, that characterization is important, showing us more about how they interact with the society that they came from. Some of the commentary on the fucked-up way that we build ourselves into social and governmental and the, the the hierarchies that develop and everything like that, that's going to be a much larger part of the conversation when we finally get to Princess Thieves, since that's uh, the one of the primary focuses of that particular story. But we have our villains, the forces of the world, trying to prevent agency from our uh, from the cats of the new world we have quincy p matthews who is i only realized in retrospect is a very clever reference to amistad itself because john quincy adams was one of the primary characters on the side of good in that story and the actor that played the protagonist that was trying to get the slaves free the lawyer was voiced by Matthew McConaughey. So it, it, Quincy P. Matthews is a portmanteau of two characters allied with the angels in this case, I guess. So, and it's a good catch. Top, I wouldn't have necessarily caught it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, 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 I ended up, you know, as I always do, trying to go in deep, and suddenly, like, I understood the parallels between this and Amistad almost immediately back when I first read this in 2019, uh, even though I hadn't seen the actual movie in a very long time and could not relate to you the individual details of the movie at all. Like, I didn't even remember that uh, Anthony Hopkins played John Quincy Adams in that movie. I just remembered Matthew McConaughey and Jimon Honsu as being the spokesperson for the slaves and very little else. I think Pete Postlewaite's in it too. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to ever bother going back to seeing that movie for any reason uh, because mm. it's hard for me to view it in any kind of positive light after listening to and agreeing with the way Alex and Sharon felt about it when they did their quick review. Since time of recording, I did go back and watch a good portion of the movie. Pete Postlethwaite is in it, playing the lawyer opposing McConaughey's character. But I'm going to admit to losing interest in finishing the movie after a scene between John Quincy Adams talking with Theodore Jodson, an abolitionist printer and businessman played by Morgan Freeman. Jodson has gone back to Adams looking for advice on how to proceed now that the results from their first trial have been thrown out thanks to political wrangling. Adams' recommendation is that in order to have the judge be sympathetic, they need to find a way to characterize the Africans on trial as people, find a way to tell their story. But the way he says it is, what you don't know and haven't bothered in the least to discover is who they are. 
I have no idea how the historical events of Amistad actually played out. But the idea of one of the most privileged white men in history telling a black man, a former slave, that he hasn't bothered to learn more or care about these Africans as people, just came across as entirely tone-deaf to me. Even if Jodson did grow up in America and doesn't know the language of the African captives, as an abolitionist, he surely cares more about the plight of other black people and their personhood than a white man that can't be arsed to do much more than offer a few scraps of experience to the people actually working to protect others from death or slavery. And part of the reason I highlight this is that as we learn more about Quincy Matthews, we know that he, at least, has put the work in and believes in the inherent personness of the aboriginal cats already. But one of the other interesting side details is that Quincy, the, the lawyer, has a cheetah companion that is assisting him in his during the trial to like lay out the artifacts and basically just be his uh i don't know she's a colleague she's a colleague she's an assistant she works with him Uh, i don't think she is ever named during any point of it but it definitely makes one wonder is this a cheetah that is uh, potentially a freed slave because he is an abolitionist that he has given work to. The presence of the Cheetah colleague might well be a callback to Jodson himself. The abolitionists played by Freeman and Stellan Skarsgård are in fact the employers of McConaughey's lawyer, and therefore not a part of the trial itself, but they do assist McConaughey throughout the film as more investigation and resources are needed. Or do other species of cats exist in the world of Albion other than cheetahs being savage tribes, quote-unquote, that the lions of Albion harvested from the New World. This is part of that earlier conversation we were having about are there lions that the aboriginal tribes of uh, that are part of the New World, have they encountered lions that are not uh, the Lions of Albion, we don't know, and we don't necessarily know where this where this cheetah colleague comes from. So it hints at interesting, broader questions to be asked that we may find out in Panther Soul, or we may not. Hmm. I look forward to it. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, having made the comparison between Matthew's colleague and Jodson from Amistad, and remembering that Matthews is both a lawyer and an anti-slavery activist, It's entirely possible that she may just be a freed slave much as Judson himself was. That doesn't change the fact that both Toby and I are very much looking forward to Panther Soul, in part to learn more about the wider world of Rama. This is also where, as alluded to earlier, Dr. Shira is one of the two voices that characterize the events in the Tron Leon. We see, as also referred to earlier, how listening to Quincy talk and being inspired by him and being able to reflect on everything that she's experienced up till then, how she realizes that she wants to be a part of something greater that helps undo the great crime that this enslaving entails. 
So we are happy for her becoming more realized in wanting to be heroic in this regard. Mm -hmm. Uh, It just gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling that now that the immediate threat has been removed and she can make decisions without undue pressures that she would potentially end up making the right ones um, as we will see in the following chapter which we will cover next time Mm. I sort of jumped ahead to this moment when I was talking earlier but uh, it is definitely another step towards her kind of becoming her better self which Mm -hmm. is appreciated and also kind of a good notable example of what you can do if you want to kind of you feel those similar feelings of confronting and acknowledging that the system is broken and you can do more to make it better exactly and this is also our final moment of characterization for captain beatrix even though she is a narrator for the proceeding of events unlike any of the other cats during this chapter, we don't actually see very much into her head. We see the internal thoughts of Rickish and Liseth and Shala and Marek, and we even see the personal deliberations that Dr. Shira has with herself as the trial plays out. But we don't get that same moment for captain queensbury herself we only see what she does which is respond to the sudden entry of the the king of the lions here it wasn't until just now that i realized that a king named louis might be a deliberate homage to the original animated jungle book even if that king louis is an orangutan and not a lion obviously The Jungle Book's King Louis is more of a comedic foil than this King Louis is, even if he does come across as a bit of a buffoon at first. When they glom onto Miguel as being a pretty prize for them to take home, just for the unusual novelty of it. And it's here where Beatrix does something unusual. She does assert her supposed ownership of Miguel, but then goes on to blatantly lie about him in order to prevent Miguel's acquisition. From a practic from from a an arguable standpoint, everything that she says, with the exception of the fact that he doesn't actually throw feces, is technically true. She took possession of Miguel herself, and so therefore quote-unquote, has the authority to dispense with Miguel as she chooses, and yet she ends up lying specifically so that they are not separated. And we don't know why she made this decision, and there are some values that are ascribed to her that we will get into next time in terms of why she might have done what she did, but as it stands, it is a final note of making us question how she has been influenced by these events. We know that Shira has been influenced to want to 
make major changes in her life, we get less of a sense of what future decisions the captain will make in terms of her own role in all of this. And because we have seen much of her that inclines towards ongoing, just looking out for herself, that may be very well be the direction she heads in. Or, I don't know. At, at the end hmm. of the day, we can only speculate on what this small act of kindness actually means. Hmm. I mean, if she really was as much of a snob that her demeanor makes us initially think, as well as as purely self-interested as her actions and her expressed thoughts on things are, then why wouldn't she do something that would put her in good favor with the king? Selling or giving Miguel to him could benefit her, but she nevertheless chooses to lie in order to put Miguel out of the king's hands. It's the first active thing she's done which has a hint of kindness and zero benefit to her to it, which I think is what makes it as noteworthy as it is. That's actually a really good point, because we don't know what her personal circumstances are right now. She has apparently been doing this, you know, shuttling of goods back and forth from the New World to Albion for a while now. It may well be that her plants might have survived and she still might be able to make a profit on those, but her overall standing might well be damaged because the stalwart whale was taken over and just because they managed to salvage the situation somewhat. Based on how the trial itself gets decided, the company that she works for is now out a lot of potential revenue because those slaves are no longer stock that can be sold for profit. They make the decision to execute all of them, which Mm. means that the trading company might decide to take it out on her. I mean, Mm. we already know that corporations aren't necessarily inclined to look out for people, especially when they screw up. They might choose to sanction her for being unable to keep her ship under control and therefore costing them this a whole lot of money. So mm-hmm. the idea of, hey, maybe I can salvage some of this by getting in good with the king could be a way to potentially dig herself out of it. Yeah, to mitigate the damage of all this. Exactly, and she chooses not to take it. So, yeah. Especially because, as yeah. you indicate, she takes plants and sells them. This is not that different to what she has established that she's interested in doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that final point actually gives me even greater hope at her personal characterization that she could have used Miguel to her own advantage, but actually gave something up by choosing to tell the lie that she did. It's it's different from some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier, where we were talking about things that she could potentially do that would cost her nothing. In this case, she clearly lost a benefit by choosing the action she did. Exactly. Yeah. At one point, Alex was wondering about how people might feel if Beatrix shows back up. 
if they would accept a possible redemption arc for her if we were presented with one. To which I say, it's always possible to atone for one's actions, if one's intent is pure. And I would be a pretty large hypocrite if I didn't give Beatrix that chance. One of my favorite shows of the last five years was The Good Place, where the protagonist, played by Kristen Bell, is actually a pretty scummy person overall in terms of how she treats people and is willing to work for companies that scam people. She is selfish and willing to lie to stay out of trouble, or even lie if it just seems like it might be fun. But she eventually strives to be a better person, and one could definitely argue she has become one by the end of that story. Now, none of that is quite like being the captain of a slaving vessel, where she is openly facilitating the slave trade, not just ferrying slaves to and from, but apparently being present and commanding her people to take the natives captive, given that we know she was there when Hrau and Haka were taken, due to her taking Miguel for her own. None of that paints her in a good picture. But based on our multiple talks on the differences between Mohawk, and Beatrix and Shira, I do feel like there is nothing about her that is not potentially redeemable. Presuming she really means it. It's not quite on the same level as being turned around a lot on how I perceived Haka, thanks to the upcoming chapters that discussed his story. But even as she looks out for herself and lets herself be a tool for the greater evil of colonialism, Beatrix is not without empathy or limits. We don't get to see enough of her to know her thoughts. One of those aphorisms that have a truth behind them is to look to a person's actions to see their true character. In this chapter, she shows an unexpected level of insight and empathy for Miguel. Combine that with what we learn in the next chapter, and her actions show she could be making an effort to change. That there has been some level of self-evaluation since the whale was taken. Maybe one day we'll see what has become of her. Given that Panther Soul is coming soon, maybe sooner than we think. Uh, okay. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, this also means that we end our episode on the actual events that take place in Chapter 20 or Chapter 21, depending on, again, which medium you're using. Maybe it would have made more sense to include the next chapter in it as well, in that it it sort of encapsulates this arc better overall. But I didn't think about that at the time, and (laughs) so, you know, we're just going to go with... Cliffhanger. Yeah, Cliffhanger, the way it played out, which is that all of the cats are, are sentenced to execution, and it seems like all oh, we, we we've reached another all hope is lost moment here, but considering how many chapters there are left, we can assure new listeners that in fact all hope is not lost. This mm. is just the way things played out here, and that there is still plenty more story to be told. Indeed. So it may seem like we're ending on a dark note, but longtime fans will be aware that. That this is just the quiet before the storm, and that we will have some degree of catharsis and quote-unquote happy ending for our heroes. Mm-hmm. But that's all stuff we're going to talk about next time. 
In the meantime, thank you very much for coming with us on this long, drawn-out journey that will encapsulate four episodes, three episodes. I don't know. It, it depends on how we edit this down. We, we have been talking longer than some experts on cat biology would be doing lectures. <laughs> But we hope it's more more entertaining than cat <laughs> too. Depends on your interests, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so thank you all of you, and the next time you hear from us, we will be discussing the final five, or in some cases, six chapters of Tiger's Eye, which culminate in the final fate of the cats, and. An unexpected third narrator to this story. Which, uh-huh. Oh yes, exactly. So there, there is there is one more voice that we have not heard from, and we are going to be traveling backwards and forward in time as we get even more context to all of the events that have played out. So thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. And we will see you next time on another trip through the wind door. Take care. I made a big deal about our discussions for this set of chapters taking up a lot of space. As it turns out, it's entirely possible that the final chapters will take up even more space, depending on what gets used and what doesn't of the three Skype conversations we had on our list for the final chapters of Tiger's Eye. Going back to the beginning, after all, means that we now have to cover a lot of ground that had already been previously discussed, now with new information that could change things dramatically. So in the coming months, you'll have those episodes, you'll have a Stone Spring Maiden's quick review, you'll have our final thoughts on the feelings this story brought up for us, and very likely, also an interview with the Purple Tigress herself, Maureen Foley. As it turns out, I did find a few small outtakes in the remaining recording I edited, which will be at the end of our outro. But for our closing music, I give you another old favorite from Afrokelt Sound System, Volume 3. After When You're Falling, which is the track that introduced me to the group, this is my favorite piece. No lyrics, just some fun musical stylings that can get you going. After the last few weeks, I think we need a piece of music that has no complicated feelings behind it. Just something fun to get you bouncing. Until next time, this is Colossus.
you know, I'm glad that the thought is out there. The cat is certainly out of the bag. <laughs> you, God damn it, you, you set that up. <laughs> uh, you know, it just snuck up and pounced. Yeah. All right. Um, I mean, I was feeding it. <laughs> that one wasn't even set up. That's that's why I have to do the proper work for it. Where the reason why she is a traitor is, excuse me, the reason why she is a traitor, for some reason the way I said that a moment ago made me think I was saying the word traitor. During our last Skype conversation, I had to take an extended bathroom break, giving Toby room to get into all kinds of shenanigans while the recorder was still running. So to end episode 18, part 3, I give you the musical and comedy stylings of Toby Youngius. Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? I don't know the rest of the lyrics, I'm sorry. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm only joking. But then I get choked up a lot during these shows. Pongo, bongo. Where's his bongos? That will make sense only to Sarah. I know you're confused, Greg. I know you are. You're probably only hearing this in the edit weeks from now. But, yeah. <laughs> Ask me about it sometime. Welcome to Top 4-4, we're back on this Think I was gonna teach you all a lesson you won't learn. And I'm out, I can't think of any more Easter eggs. Gave you a fresh opportunity to say a bunch of things behind my back, so I'll be interested. What I, I said nothing behind your back, absolutely <laughs> nothing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll see how. I, that see, I see Sarah smiling in the corner. That means nothing. <laughs> Are you blind when you're born? Can you see in the dark? Can you look at a king? Would you sit on his throne? Can you say of your bite that it's worse than your bark? Are you cock of the walk? When you're walking alone, because jellicles are, and jellicles do, jellicles do.